The scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 13. It can be found on page 453 in the Black Bibles. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark and Lauren. Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be with you this morning. If this is your first time to Christ the King, or if you've been here a long while, thanks for coming. We're really glad you're here. My name is Ryan Dugan. I'm the young adult director here at the church. I'm also a pastoral intern and a seminary student. And as you might imagine, for seminary students, we spend a lot of time studying the Bible. It's a good thing. If you're trying to become a pastor, it's probably what you should be doing. And I want to tell you one of the things I appreciate the most about the Bible. It's that it's honest. There's a tremendous amount of realism to the Bible. Here's what I mean. God does not back away from the reality of our experience in life. The psalm we just read is proof of that. And I think that's for good reason. If I may quote the masterful piece of work in cinema, The Princess Bride, there's a great line in that movie that says this, life is pain, highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. I'll tell you what, the Bible isn't selling you something. It's not trying to bait and switch you. It's honest. Like I said, this psalm is an indicator of that. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs and poems given to God's people for individual and corporate worship. A lot of them are songs of thanksgiving, of, of gratitude, of jubilation. But a large portion of those psalms are psalms of lament. Lament is a fancy church word to say deep expre- expressed grief. So that is to say a large portion of the book of Psalms, God's word, his guide to his people for how to live and interact with him are songs of deep grief. Deep in anguishing grief. And I've been in this church long enough. I know a lot of you enough. And frankly, I've just been a human long enough to know that there are, this room is full of people who either have or are in the middle of or about to enter seasons of tremendous pain. And God's not ignorant of that. Instead, he offers us a guide of how to deal with that pain, how to move through that pain, how to heal in that pain, a guide like Psalm 13, a psalm of grief. Because pain is digested through grief. We heal from our pain by grieving. So let's pray together and let's dive into our text. Cool? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a God who's honest, a God who is near. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage me this morning with this text and the people here in this room 
with your truth. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, it's right underneath the big, you know, big black letters, 1-3, so 13. And the title of the psalm, you'll see something that says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So there's two things you need to remember because of that. First, again, this is a song given to God's people for worship. So like what we're doing right now. This is what the psalm's purpose was. And this Psalm 13 is a psalm, it's by a lot of scholars known as the prototype lament psalm. In other words, what we just read was the blueprint by, by, by which all other psalms of lament and grief take notice. Secondly, it's a psalm of David. David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. Now, much like the other psalms, we don't know exactly what it is that's driving the darkness that David talks about. We don't know exactly what's motivating him to write this particular psalm, but I do know, and we know, a lot of what happened in David's life. David was a person who early on was abandoned and mistreated by his own father. He was someone who was adopted uh, and had a new boss who hated him and was jealous of him. He was someone who lived in consistent marital strife. He was someone who lived long enough to see his best friend pass away. He was someone who knows the grief of losing a child. He's someone who knows the grief of having children who hate him. He's someone who lived every day acutely aware of the consequences that his sin wrought on his family and the country which he led. The point here is that Psalm 13 is written by a man who is experiencing agonizing debilitating grief, or excuse me, sadness, pain. You see this in the first two verses. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever, or forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? How long, how long, how long, how long? Four times David cries out to God. Four times in desperation he yells to the skies and says, why? Why have you forgotten me? That's an interesting question, isn't it? God is omniscient. He knows all things that ever have happened, all that is happening now, and all that ever will be in the future. Is David somehow implying that God the Almighty has had a lapse of memory? Of course not. What he's communicating right now is that he feels utterly and completely abandoned by God. Why would you leave me why would you hide your face from me? Why would you turn your back on me? And I think maybe the most painful verse of all, in the beginning of verse two, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? Is there anything more painful, more lonely than going through something difficult and feeling like you're all alone? This is where David is. What we see in these first two verses is a man who's excruciatingly and perhaps uncomfortably honest about where he is and how he feels about it. And I need you to pay attention to this. This is our first step today, honesty. How do we grieve? How do we heal from the pain in our life? We are honest. There's a man named Bill Wilson in the early 1930s, started his career in Wall Street. And early on, he started to fail in his career because his drinking habit was out of control. He'd show up late to work, or not at all. 
his life began to move into a life of shambles. And many of his friends tried to get him out of it, tried to move him towards a life of sobriety, but it wasn't until his childhood drinking buddy, actually, Ebby Thatcher, who had become a Christian. And with the help of a guy named Dr. William Silkworth and an organization called the Oxford Group that moved him towards sobriety. And in 1935, on a trip to Akron, Ohio, Bill Wilson and Ebby Thatcher started a group that would then morph into several other dozen groups that would go on to help millions of men and women find hope and healing in life. It was Alcoholics Anonymous. And the cornerstone of their program was rigorous honesty. Do you know why AA and SA and Al-Anon and all the dozens of things work the way they work? Why they're so successful? They tap into something that God has shown us in his scriptures and in his gospel, which is that the first step in receiving healing is being honest. That's step one. The first step to be free from the pain of addiction is to be honest. And I'm not talking about platitude honesty. I'm not talking about vague honesty. I'm talking about look yourself in the mirror and name it all honesty. And the truth about the gospel is that our first step in receiving healing from the way that sin has wrecked our life is to be rigorously honest about where our sin has led us and where the sin of others, what pain that's led us in. Because here's, here's the, tick, the, the trick, friends. You and I are only as sick as our secrets. We are only as sick as our secrets. And David is honest here with himself and with God and he sits in those feelings. He embraces those things. How often do we let ourselves do that? How often do we let ourselves without edit or caveat to confess both the pain we've caused others by our wrongdoing and the pain that we've endured? You might be like me and I don't like doing that because it's painful. It's uncomfortable. Instead, I think a lot of us distract ourselves. We, met, we self-medicate. We minimize our own struggles by making excuses for our sin. We reject the reality of our pain by comparing it to other people. Well, at least it's not as, I don't have it as bad as those guys. We avoid the hurt and difficult things in life by any means necessary. Netflix, sex, alcohol, social media, work. Or some of us, maybe at its worst, have been taught and learned that to be weak, excuse me, to grieve, to name the pain in our life is actually a sign of weakness or a sign of a lack of faith. And to that, I want to remind you who David is. Yes, David wore a toga, probably, and played the harp, and wrote sonnets and poems and sang in his castle. He's also a man who killed bears and lions and a giant with his bare hands and a rock. He's a man who led thousands of other men into battle victoriously. And he's a man who God said is after his own heart. David is not a man of weakness. He's a man of strength. And he's a man of faith. And he shows that strength in the fact that he is weak before God. That he confesses to God, this is how I feel. And it's rough. You've abandoned me. This level of humility is God's prescription for healing from pain. So how can we build a liturgy or a practice of this sort of honesty, this level of honesty? Well, I want to give you one practical thing, and I know what I'm about to ask is hard. Listen, I've got two toddlers and an infant. Time is not easy to come by. I get it. But here's what I need from you. 
Five minutes every day this week. Five minutes of undistracted, quiet time. And I want you to pray and ask God, search me, oh God. I want you to pray and ask him to reveal the places of brokenness in your heart. To reveal the places of anguish and pain that maybe you've ignored for years. And then just start writing down. Take note of it. Like literally, pull out your phone. Don't play Wordle. Pull out your phone. Write it down. Take notes, pen and pad. The first thing we do that God's given us to heal is that we must be rigorously honest about the pain we've experienced and the pain that we've caused in each other's lives. But what if this feels too overwhelming? What if to open up that door might be too much? There's too much there. There's too much pain. You don't know what I've been through. Let's keep looking. Verses three and four, read it with me. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. From verse two to verse three, David goes in verse three from embracing his grief then to asking and seeking help. He makes a petition to God. Consider me, answer me, listen to me. It's a very personal request. Again, something that some of us might be uncomfortable with when it comes to the Almighty. He says, stop ignoring me. Listen to me. Where does David get off talking to God like that? Well, it's in verse three. I want you to look. Consider and answer me. And it says, O Lord. It's all capital letters, which means this is the name Yahweh. This is God's personal name. The name that he gave his people to call him by and to cry out to him with. This is also uh, the name that, that uh, implies I'm close by. I am near. It's an intimate relational name. It's also his covenantal name. It's a name of promise. A promise that I am with my people. I am for my people. I will redeem my people. I will rescue my people. So David here is presuming on the name that God has already given. He's presuming on what God has told him. He's saying, Yahweh, the God of promise, stop hiding your face from me. Don't leave me alone. I need your help. Part of grief, this process by which God moves us through healing from the pain that we've endured and the pain that we've given is by being first honest about it. And secondly, we have to journey with God's help. I did go to Wheaton College in Chicago. I played football there. If you've known me long enough at the church, you've probably heard that before. Uh, I played defensive line, not offensive line. That's offensive, okay? Don't call me an offensive line. Every year at Wheaton, at least in my time, they've since changed uh, since I've left, we did something called the 12-minute run. It was our conditioning test every, every fall. And what it meant was, based on your position and your size, you had to run a certain number of laps around the track before 12 minutes ran out. And it was the worst, because if you failed, you had to do it again. So now it's like, oh, I'm not good enough to make it, and then it's like as if you're going to get better by the next day. You have to run it again and again and again and again until eventually you make it. Here's what happened. Every single year, there were guys who knew they had no chance of making a 12-minute run. And so what they did is they recruited pushers. Because see, here's what happened. Imagine the uh, four-by-one Olympic race where they're passing the baton, but instead of batons, it's 340-pound offensive linemen. So they would run their race, and the final lap, the rest of the team would line up on the corners and push them as they went their final lap. 300-pound men would run 50-second 400s, which is fast, by the way to finish their 12-minute run. 
And every year, guys recruited. Every year, guys asked for pushers. And every year, they did so without shame. Do you know why? Because they knew we'd answer the call. We're on the same team. We're aiming towards the same goal. We have the same trembling fear of failing the 12-minute run. Likewise, you and I need one another. David cries out to God because he knew he couldn't finish the race on his own. He couldn't endure the pain he felt by himself. And we also cry out to God in deep and excruciating agony and honesty, and he will answer us. And he has answered us by giving us his church, by giving us each other in this room right now. Again, spoiler, every single one of you are not alone because every single one of you has are right now or will endure something so painful that you cannot handle it on your own. It will be too heavy. It'll be too overwhelming. It'll be too profound. And one dire mistake we make as evangelical Christians, as we look at passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says, he will not give you anything to be tempted by that's beyond your strength. And we think, great, I'll muscle up and endure and figure it out on my own. And we forget the second half of that verse. But with temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Is it possible that the means by which God has given you to endure the suffering in your life is yes, the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit through his church? So how do we do this? How do we lean into that practically? Well, I'm gonna assume all of you are gonna listen well to the first step and write down that list this week. And once you're finished, I want you at the end of the week to find someone who loves God and loves you and share it with them. Look around this morning in this room. These are your pushers. These are the men and women that God has already given you to finish your race, even when it feels like it's impossible to do so. Allow yourself this week to hear what is true of you, what God has said is true of you through the voice of a friend. Allow yourself this week to feel the mercy and love and tenderness of God through the mercy and love and tenderness of a friend. Allow yourself this week to feel the provision of God through the provision of friendship. We need desperately one another to battle the false narratives that sin tells us. Sin says you're unlovable, that you're unredeemable, that you have no value, but God's truth says Because of the work of Christ, you are more valued, more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. Now a question that some of you may be asking is how do I know that's safe? How do I know that it's safe? Let's look at verses five through six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Talk about a tone switch. Huge flip from four to five. How David goes from this anxious, alone, scared person to this person of confidence and boldness. He used to be sure and afraid of his enemy's victory over him, and now he's sure and confident in God's victory over his enemies. What happened? What changed? His anchor is in the proven steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verse five. I trusted in your steadfast love. In verse six, because you have dealt bountifully with me. David is looking 
back to the way God has already proven himself as Yahweh, this close, intimate covenant God, as his foundation and confidence for moving forward. I told you in seminary, I'm in seminary, so here's a little Hebrew nerd action for you. Ready? Steadfast love is actually chesed. And here's the thing. English is like terrible at actually translating that fully. That sort of love, chesed love, is all-encompassing, world-shattering, life-changing, overwhelming, radical, unbelievable sort of love. In fact, the closest person I've ever seen to describe it is Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storbrook Bible. This is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Grieving. This process of healing looks like being rigorously honest about the pain that others have put on you and the pain that you've caused others. It looks like reaching out to God and his people for support, but lastly, it also looks like leaning into what God says is actually true of us. Better than David, we also have a place to look for God's loyal love on display. We too have a secure anchor, a hope of relief and freedom for the sin and shame that others have put in us and our own. It is Christ, the bearer of our shame, who's given us freedom. This Christ, by the way, who's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows pain. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of abandonment. He knows the pain of loneliness. He knows the pain of humiliation. He knows the pain of loss because he signed up to feel it. God, out of his tremendous love for us, has made us free from carrying the pain of shame by taking our shame on himself. Listen to this from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned in our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Real transformation happens when we name what's actually going on in our lives and we hear God's truth over us. We too must ground ourselves in affirmations of truth, realizing that Jesus Christ is big enough and has already taken care of your shame. It is finished. He wasn't teasing you. It is done and he has won. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might be the righteousness of God. In other words, he made him who knew no shame to be shamed that we might be free from its bondage. Through his death, his resurrection, we find freedom. That, my friends, is chesed love. An unbreaking, unwavering, never giving up, never stopping, always and forever love. And it's Christ's love for us, that love and only that love that gives us the courage and the strength and the assurance to be honest and to seek help. I want to end with this. I do have three girls, four, two, and seven months. 
There's lots of princess parties in our house. And yes, I look fabulous in a tiara. It's true. It's part of the reason I grew my hair out, so I can braid it. I'm learning, by the way, how to do that. It's so hard. Okay. We love princess parties. We love princess dance parties. We love singing princess songs. And one of my girls' favorites is Frozen. Now, I realized Frozen was cool like 10 years ago, but it lives on in our house, okay? What I'm about to share with you is not a Disney-approved summary that they would put on Disney+. Plus. But here's what I think the story of Frozen is, is actually. I think the actual summary is this. There was a girl who had a gift, and one day she made a mistake, and she hurt someone she loved, and she was ashamed for it. And in that moment, her parents, in response to her mistake, shamed her and hid her away. And in hopes to maybe heal, in hopes to protect, she ran further and further away from the relationships in her life. And in her isolation, she grew lonely and depressed and even more isolated. And the irony is that the relationships she tried to protect, she actually destroyed with her parents, namely with her sister. And all this girl wanted to know was that she was loved. That someone saw all the things, all the things that she hates the most about herself and that she was loved. Friends, this is Christ's love for you. He sees all the ways in which pain has been afflicted upon you and he grieves it. He weeps over it and he died for it. And he knows all the things in your heart right now that are stirring that you regret that you loathe about yourself and he sees it, he knows it and he died for it because he loves you. In light of this love, let's this week be honest, reach out for his help, the help of a friend and pray that the Holy Spirit might remind us of how great and extravagant that love really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning for your servant David who suffered, that we might have this example. Thank you for Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you suffered, that we might have life and a sure hope of reunion, of reconciliation, and of renewal. And it's your name that we pray, amen.